Don't you know about the bird? Hey, everybody knows that the bird is a word. Bird, 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 bird is a word. Can we just open with this? With George just, just jamming it out? Bird is the word. Can I just hit record? I think it is recording. It is recording. Welcome, everybody, to Bobby Talks. Dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. And that is so true today when it comes to true crime. I'm sitting here with... Carrie Drobin out of uh, Arizona. I don't know specifically if she's from Scottsdale, if she's from Phoenix, uh, but in the case of uh, the true crime world, or crime in itself, she's a criminal defense attorney. She has her bachelor, her master's from John Hopkins. She's a former prosecutor. She is an award-winning author. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with Carrie Drobin. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm doing great. I'm doing great for a Monday. <laughs> doing great for a Monday. Mondays are Mondays are good or bad, depending on which way you look at it. I actually always tend to like Mondays. It's like a reset. Yeah. Well, Carrie, always, what, what part of Arizona are you from? Are you from Scottsdale? Are you from Phoenix? Where are you from? Um, I'm from Phoenix. Okay. You know, in the heart of the city, the, you know, where the, where the crime happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, you are a, uh, first of all, let me just say out loud, you're a badass human being um, because you have so many uh, boxes that you check off. You are a criminal defense attorney. Did I want to make sure I said all these things correctly? Criminal defense attorney, correct? Yes. You are currently and still actively writing uh, um, nonfiction pieces. Is that correct? Yes. (laughs) And uh, yeah. (laughs) And you were once a former prosecutor. So that's on the other side of the coin. Is that true in saying that as well? That is correct. Yes. I've worn many hats and it's helped me uh, probably be a better defense lawyer, to be honest with you. Knowing the other side is always helpful. No, that, that's a good point of putting it that way. I, uh, I always feel like uh, the best, I, I'm, a, I'm an educator. So I, I always feel like the people that become the best administration, the best principals, the best, you know, uh, superintendents are those that actually were teachers at one point in time. So those that have kind of lived through that pipeline, they kind of work their way up to the other side. They, they kind of know how to make relationships and make decisions based on that. Um, a little bit, I guess, better, for lack of better words. They're, they're a little more uh, educated in their decisions when it comes to that because they've seen both sides of it. So in your case, that that's definitely true. Um, which one did you, I mean, you're currently a criminal defense attorney, but uh, did you enjoy your time as a prosecutor or what? You know, um, I, I actually have liked both sides of it. But to be honest, I think that criminal defense suits me better. It's more creative. And, um, you know, I, I think it's more people oriented, if I can say that, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I was um, constructing a crime. When I'm a criminal defense attorney, I'm deconstructing the crime. So I'm right. trying to, but both sides are telling a story. It's just, you know, using the same set of facts and telling a story from a different point of view. So I think they're they're both equally challenging. It's just that there's not a whole lot of interaction with, um, you know, I guess you're interacting with victims' families, but it's much more in the trenches when you're a defense lawyer. So I, I prefer that. <laughs> so it's pretty yeah. challenging. I, I like that you use the word um, creative, right? Because uh, that's exactly what you kind of have to be, right? I, um, I, I can't imagine that anybody in their right mind grows up thinking, I want, you know, to be a criminal defense attorney. Uh, My passion lies there. But in this country, it's a civil duty. 
and everybody has the right to one. And in your case, you have to do it and you have to make sure that you provide uh, your due diligence, that you provide the best opportunity for those people in those situations. Do you find that difficult? I mean, obviously it is. I know it goes without saying, but like, I mean, answer my dumb question if you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the single uh, most frequent question that I get asked is how do I sleep at night? So <laughs> I get asked that right. all the time. And it's really, really simple is that I believe in truth and justice. And I think that, you know, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, you're still trying to follow the Constitution, make sure the person has a fair trial, um, you know, make sure there's nothing prejudicial coming in because you're right. I mean, that is what our country's founded on. You know, everybody has a right to a fair trial. Even if I think the person, you know, 99% of the time is guilty, they still deserve that fair trial. So it, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, you know, people want to call it the dark side, working for the dark side. You know, I don't really see it that way. I, I think it's a, I think it's an incredibly difficult job from both sides. And, you know, and I was equally passionate when I was a prosecutor. I thought when I got into prosecution that I was going to be a career prosecutor. I mean, that's what I set out to do. But I did not like the politics of it. I felt that I had no discretion when I was a prosecutor and that I had to kind of follow the party line and, you know, take my cases to trial, even when I didn't want to take them to trial. You know, so it was it was very confined and constricted when I worked as a prosecutor. And I know that's not the case for, you know, a lot of my peers, but that's how I felt when I worked as a prosecutor. And I definitely don't feel that way in the defense side. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because I was going to say I, I might, you know, just off the top of my head, I would assume that as a prosecutor, you decide when and if something should go to court because you're the end all be all there. I can't imagine being forced into something if you don't feel you have a strong enough case just so you can, you know, because maybe uh, political lines are telling you that you have to do it for to save face for some particular reason. That would be very difficult because you'd be put in the middle of something that you might not think is, uh, you know, necessarily ready to go to court. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, that and also, I mean, there are certain cases that are policy cases, for example, depending on what, you know, DA's office or county attorney's office that you, know, you work for. There are certain cases that you're not allowed to plead out or you can't plead out. Um, you know, there's certain mandatory sentencing guidelines that really restrict a lot of, you know, what you can do as a prosecutor. So I think that's why I think it's, you know, far less creative. So as a defense lawyer, I mean, I work myself. So I have my own firm. I can pick and choose the cases I want to take. Um, you know, I can either negotiate something out to a plea bargain or take it to trial. So there's a lot more flexibility and freedom in doing that. But I've also worked on the capital side, which is death penalty work. And oh, that man. is court appointed, you know, so I don't have a lot of freedom there. I mean, I, I don't have a freedom in terms of the cases that I choose because I get the cases appointed to me from the Supreme Court. And so I, I have to work those cases. But as far as how to present the defense, I have a lot of autonomy in doing that. Okay. Okay. That's good. I mean, that's, you don't want to be micromanaged too much, right? No, none of us do it when we do a job. Um, <laughs> you know, you said something though, a little bit earlier that I just, uh, I find to be fascinating in its own right. Um, I cannot imagine as a criminal defense attorney, when you are, even yourself sure that they have committed this crime. And this is where I was going to get, because can one person ever truly, um, how do I want to word this? Can one person ever truly remove their own personal bias from, um, 
from the situation long enough to present or represent their client 100% the way that they should? Um, are you asking me if the person tells me that they are guilty, can I still represent them? Or, <laughs> um, so, you know, when I first started out in my career, I never wanted to know from my client. I never asked him that question and I'm using him cause you know, 90% of my clients were male, Okay. but I would go in and I would, I would talk about the facts and I would ask them what happened, but I would go in with the assumption that they're probably not going to tell me whether they did it or not. Some of them will, if they did it, then I'm looking for, you know, can we plea bargain this out? You know, what is the, so I, you always have to have candor to the court. So you're never going to go into a case where if somebody tells me that they did it, I'm never going to go in and present a defense. They didn't do it, you know, like, right. like presence or something, you know, because it, it would be a lie. And so right. a lot of times I will preface it with my client. I'll say, don't tell me. Don't tell me whether you did this or you didn't do this. So let's just operate in the facts and what the state can prove. So yeah. it kind of takes me out of that equation. But definitely, if somebody tells me they did it, I'm, I got to go with that. <laughs> I got to okay. go with that. But by the same token, if they tell me they didn't do it, I, I got to go with that defense, you know, and I got to try to build that up. You know, sometimes I've had people tell me that a third guy did it. You know, it's a third party defense. So even right. if we can't find this phantom third person, that's the defense I'm going to go with. I'm going to go try to find, you know, that third person. I'm going to send an investigator out to try to find this person. And that has happened on multiple occasions, you know, and that's the defense, even if I don't even find the person, because that's what he's telling me. That's what he's so, telling you. I can't even right. imagine being a private investigator and feel like you're being led on a witch hunt that doesn't exist. Um, but you have to do your due diligence, you know, both you and that person that's doing the PI. So right. I can't imagine right. that world. That's a very, uh, very interesting world that you live in. Um, the creative part, part of it, though, it just the puzzle, you know, the people that like to solve puzzles and strategies, that part would be kind of fun. And I, I would think uh, yeah. a little bit uh, stimulating and interesting, to say the least. But I, I would say the same thing. I think I would go into the situation and, and be like, I don't want to your thoughts on whether or not you did this or committed this crime are irrelevant. I just want the facts of what happened, what you're from your perspective and so on, because it is good to hear that if they presented with you that they're guilty, that you have a obligation to then represent them as a guilty person. Um, right. Does that always the case when it comes to criminal defense attorneys, do they take pride in trying to get a, a, a guilty man or girl and make them innocent? Is there people like that in your profession, do you find, or do you not want to speak ill of your your, your peers? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if I can speak in general terms. I would think that most people are, um, you know, they're, they're trying to get the best possible defense for their client. Okay. So there are lots of, there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of confidentiality that goes into communications between attorney and client. So there's a lot of stuff that, you know, makes it into that, that work product folder <laughs> that is privileged, right? So there's not a lot of stuff that, not everything needs to be disclosed. So I, I, I'll give you an example. I once, um, I represented a serial killer. I didn't know he was a serial killer. Interesting. I, I wound up, <laughs> I, wound up I, I had this thing early on in my career, I would never go to the jails on a Sunday because it's kind of creepy. I mean, there's a jail here that you're, there's not a lot of people around you're kind of alone on that you know maximum security level floor 
but I had to go visit my client on a Sunday. Big mistake. I wound up going there and the, um, the deputies had an emergency and I, and I am not even making this up. There was a, um, an inmate who got unruly, not my client, but somebody else got unruly on the floor and they had to put a mask over him that was very much like Hannibal Lecter's mask. You know, it looked like a kind of a Freddy Krueger mask and they locked down the entire jail. So I was locked in with my client. And oh, so wow. when it was like a real, I was locked in, the, the steel doors were, were locked in and I didn't know how long this emergency was gonna last. But that was a situation where I'm locked in with this, this really like deranged killer. And the case was so crazy. He had chopped up his victim and had thrown the body parts in Roosevelt Lake. Okay. Wow. So I figured that this was my opportunity to talk to him about the crime. I'm locked in with him. I don't know when I'm getting out and I am sure as hell not going to show fear. Right. <laughs> so no, you can't. I, yeah. You know, so I took the opportunity to talk to him. And the first question out of the gate, I said, so let's talk about your murder. And his response to me was, which one? Okay. So that's a situation where he's just confessed to me of multiple murders. And because I don't represent him on those multiple murders and he hasn't been charged with them, I'm not going to say anything. So I never said anything about those other multiple bodies that were in Roosevelt Lake <laughs> with wow. the same MO. So that's, that's a perfect example of what I'm able to disclose and what I'm not going to disclose. So, so I only talk about that one murder. So, so Carrie, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> How long have you been a, a criminal defense attorney? 29 years, 29 years. So this specific situation with this, this gentleman, um, how early often, or were you into your, your career? Uh, probably 10 years. Okay. So you had so, enough grit on you to know that that's how you need to respond in that situation. Um, yeah. can you have been 100% uh, certain that you would have responded the same way? Let's say five years prior, uh, maybe year one would it have been the same thing or would you have been banging on the door trying to get out of there? How would that have played out? <laughs> you know, I have thought about that a lot because that whole experience gave me a little bit of PTSD. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like I just, I never, I never went back to visit a client on a weekend ever again. And I, and I would always go in like the middle of the day, knowing that there were a lot of attorneys there, there were people there because it's a scary place. You can get, you can get left there. I mean, you have to be escorted in. And then when you're with your client on that maximum security level, there's not a lot of people around. And they, really? they will close in there with your client because that's confidential, right? And so it's just so not even, Sorry, real quick though. I just, even in that situation, you're saying there's not even a security guard that would stay in the room because of the client confident or right. really? Right. Man. So they leave you in there. And I always used to have this fear every time that steel door bolts. Yeah. There's not, I mean, no handles on the other side you know, cause they don't want the inmates getting out. And some of those cells on that floor are very, like there, there's close contact. This isn't like, you know, Hannibal Lecter where you've got the plexiglass in between you. <laughs> like you're right, you're right there. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, early on as a defense lawyer, I think that probably would have panicked me. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I was panicked. I was panicked inside, but I, I just kind of assessed that situation and I thought 
I, I don't know how long I'm going to be in here and there's no, nobody can hear me in here. You know, yeah. I mean, I can yell and scream and no one's going to know there's something going on. So it was just a very eerie feeling. You feel very vulnerable there, but you know, at the same time, I figure he's probably not going to attack his defense attorney because I'm there to help him. <laughs> you would hope not. <laughs> but, yeah. But he was a creepy guy, a really creepy guy. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I guess I was going to go down the psychology route of that. And I want to hear it a little bit. I want to go down the psychology route of why people commit violent types of crimes, um, crimes of passion, crimes of motive, crimes of, you know, whatever. I'm sure you have a laundry list of the different things that it could be. Uh, maybe you can't speak on that specific gentleman, but like I can't assume in that you, you, you mentioned it, that he, why would he want to attack his defense attorney? My question is, is it doesn't, he doesn't strike me as a guy who very much cares whether or not he's on the outside or the inside of this world. Um, you know, whether he's inside or outside prison, he, it doesn't strike me as somebody who necessarily cares that. Is that a fair assessment of someone like him or am I way off? Not to add to your PTSD no, I think you're by any means. Right. And I think that. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think that is, you know, the, the real, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a realist when it comes to that. I'm not a bleeding heart, you know, defense lawyer. And no offense to the bleeding hearts, but I am not a bleeding heart. And I, I really, I, I know what I'm dealing with. I know the, the level of danger that is there with the clients, you know? So, I mean, so I've always taken some precaution, but you, you do feel vulnerable in that situation because you can't take anything in with you when you go into the jails, you know, I mean, same with the prisons, you know, a lot of my clients are in, are in prison, but you know, while they're awaiting sentencing, they're in the jails and we have a maximum security facility right next to the courthouse. So, you know, but you can't not visit your clients. So, it always used to strike me as, as odd. And I'm actually grateful for COVID for this reason, but yeah. it used to strike me as odd that, that we would have to get into the cells and be locked in with them. And, you know, I, as I know, I'm not alone in this, in this fear of being vulnerable there, you know, but now during COVID they have, you know, you can visit your client over a TV screen. So, so it's, it's a whole different ball game. And I think it's a lot safer for a lot of us, but yeah, there are a lot of, there's a, there are calculated risks that are taken all the time. Well, Carrie Drobin, you take calculated risks all the time with pretty much every facet of your life. Um, the very nature of the <laughs> books that you have written and the stories that you have been a part of um, and the information that people share with you, you are privy to a lot of things that uh, not a lot of people are. Um, so there's something inside of Carrie Drobin that pushes her to the edge um, and we'll kind of peel back some of those layers as we go. I wanted to transition. We're already 20 minutes into this thing. Um, I want to transition a little bit back if we can. How familiar are you with the, because um, I want to talk about true crime, uh, the Gabby Petito case right now that's taken the America by storm and uh, just the world. And how, how familiar are you with it? Did we lose her? Can you hear me, Carrie? She might be trying to figure out her remote right now. She'll pop back in when she hears us. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to transition over to the Gabby Petito case. If you guys are sitting there watching us, um, she might have to she might have to leave and uh, hop back on if she can. Carrie, if you can hear us, by all means, um, I'm going to have her jump off. 
and then jump back on. Um, but yeah, by all means, uh, she is going to be somebody that is going to have a very good, um, explanation of maybe how this case might unfold and how things might take place and handle themselves. So Carrie, uh, are you there with us? Oh, she just hopped off. She's going to hop back on here as soon as we can. Um, but I was excited to have her on the show if we can. She's calling as we speak. See what happens here. Carrie, are you there with us? Sorry about that. I'm there. Somehow you froze. No, that's okay. <laughs> if that happens, just jump off, jump back on. We'll get you taken care of. Okay. So, um, okay. I don't know how much you heard of me, but I wanted to talk a transition if we can. We'll come back to some more of that, uh, you know, your interesting work here in a little bit if we can. But I wanted to talk about the Gabby Petito case um, because it's kind of taken the world by storm. And I know there's this kind of true crime obsession within the zeitgeist of America, uh, maybe not just America, maybe within the world. But like how familiar are you with the uh, Gabby Petito case? Um, probably as familiar as as most people. <laughs> Just okay. following the, the press releases and, and up to date a bit on that. Uh, so are you somebody with something like I'm this? probably part of that. Well, I was going to ask you, are you somebody being that your profession, that you are somebody who has a little bit more interest in it than maybe the normal average Joe? Or do you think uh, there is a huge obsession with true crime in this country and that you find yourself behind? Um, I think there is a fascination with true crime. Um, I, I think it has been, it's probably, um, magnified a bit just because of the access to social media and, and other media outlets that we, that we now have. I think it's just become front row center and it is this sort of fascination. It reminds me a lot of, of horror films, <laughs> you know, people can, um, can disengage and watch from their living room, but they're also really fascinated by why people do the things they do. And a case like Gabby's is, you know, here you've got a, a, a beautiful woman, a young couple, and, and they're, they're so relatable. You know, I mean, the, the majority of the true crime audience, I hate to say it, is women. And so I think a lot of women are fascinated by this story because they can relate on, on, on a lot of levels. I mean, here's a woman who's, you know, basically recording in diary form her life story. So it's very voyeuristic. People yeah. like that idea. They like to be able to, it's like, they like to be front row center and part of that. And it's, I think the, the fascinating part of it is, um, you know, it's like we can relate to it and yet we're so relieved that we can sit on our couch and be sort of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking it. So it's, it's got all of those ingredients, but I think more than that, it also has this, um, the puzzle element, you know, I mean, we all know who did it, or at least we believe we know who did it, right. <laughs> you know? um, but, but you know, it's, it's still out there. So I think there, you can kind of play with some of those theories of what happened. I mean, it's not a who done it. It's maybe a how done it. You know, what happened? Was it an accident? Was it premeditated? Was it domestic violence that just reached that you know ultimate level? So I used to always like to say that you know domestic violence is really one step away from homicide. So you know, so that's kind of the angle that I bring to that. You know, um, I also think there was a huge missed opportunity by law enforcement, and not to you know point fingers, but I it 
frustrates me no end when I see that happening because I think that it's all about education and it's all about training. I mean, for law enforcement to have encountered this couple, to have taken statements from them, to have actually believed Gabby's statement of, it was my fault, I hit him. I mean, it, it just to me shows such a, a complete lack of awareness of what actually happens you know, with domestic violence. And so that part of the case is very frustrating and I also think very relatable. And I just wanna add one more thing to that. The other part that is fascinating to me as a mom is here's, you know, I'm gonna say the killer, okay? I know he hasn't been convicted of anything, but his right. parents who are complicit in his disappearance and in hiding him. So that of course raises all kinds of questions for you know, families out there where you can ask the question, would I do the same thing? Would I have done the same thing, you know? So, so it's just a really interesting case for all of those reasons. Yeah, no, you, you, you hit so many things there, right? Um, it, it, it's so fascinating to me. If just to, just, you know, that day that when the Utah cops pulled them over, I believe it was August 12th. It doesn't matter the dates, really. It was early in the month of August. Um, the, uh, they showed the footage. Um, they released the part of the body cam footage that came out. And what was interesting was, you're right, you're, you're looking at this distraught Gabby who is um, – she's admitting to OCD. She's admitting to um, being – having uh, levels of anxiety – and she's clearly distraught. Um, now, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean Brian isn't distraught. That doesn't mean that she was innocent or perfect in the situation. But it also doesn't uh, mean that he wasn't either. So then when they go to Brian, he's cool, calm, and collective. Um, and he's trying to, looks like he's almost trying to diffuse the setting. And, um, but what I find interesting is that there's that snippet of footage that came out. But then just here recently, I don't know if you've seen this, they actually revealed the whole footage of the conversation that took place. And I don't understand this, and maybe you would know this, Carrie. Why would they only show us a snippet of the body cam footage and the conversations that took place um, between Gabby, the police officers, and Brian, the police officers? And then within the last couple of days, they right. reveal all of it. And if you look at all of it, it does kind of paint a different picture than what that first snippet does. Why did they do that? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you know, there, there could be a lot of reasons. One is, you know, they're, they're holding back certain information, especially in a case where they're looking for somebody. They don't want to, you know, reveal everything because they're looking for specific clues that might tip off the person. So yeah. let's say, you know, Laundry's watching the news. I mean, I don't know if he is or not, but if they reveal something that is going to tip him off, they're not going to do that. So there's a lot of reasons that law enforcement will withhold certain facts or information. Um, you know, I, I don't know. In this case, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there could be any number of reasons, you know, it could be concerns over victim's family, for example. I mean, they didn't have a body really right. when they released the beginning part of it and now that gabby's remains have been found now they're releasing all of it so i mean there's lots of reasons for that but i don't think that it's anything nefarious i don't think it's like manipulating the you know the outcome of anything i think it really is 
probably um, conscious decision on law enforcement's part when they have, you know, what starts out as a missing persons case and yeah. then becomes a homicide case. So now they want a, a collective, you know, looking for now a different person. They're not looking for Gabby anymore. Now they're looking for laundry. So it just, it changes the whole dynamic, but that, that would be my guess as to why that was, you know, not revealed initially. Yeah, because I, I, I was, you know, doing my deep dive as I was doing, trying to prepare for this podcast, just so I can somehow sound intelligent next to Carrie Drobin, which is not going to be possible <laughs> for me. But I, uh, I just, I just know that like what they said was that uh, Utah law is that in a case of domestic dispute in any scenario, one person needs to uh, be taken in that evening. Um, and nobody was in that case. And I'm not here to judge and say whether or not they should or shouldn't be. Um, I, I think a lot of times when you have uh, passionate people, young people, um, toxic relationships, whatever it might be, it, it might, you know, we never know the whole story, right? There's always more to the story legitimately. Bobby talks always more to the story, but in this case, there's always more to the story. So like, I, I'm not here to say whether or not they should have went to jail or not or not, but if that is policy, it seems like they would have done, it doesn't necessarily mean that anything different would have taken place. Gabby Petito would not have been murdered. It just seems like I always come back to like, um, police officers right now in this country are taking such a beating. And you would think from a PR standpoint that they would almost, you know, I know there's job is still to solve these crimes and still make the right decisions. But like, if I'm a PR person for any police station or any, uh, you know, law enforcement, you would think that I would be fighting to say, just show the, show the whole footage or why didn't they go? That way you can kind of protect your own because it's got to be hard because now you have, like you said, interesting as a criminal defense attorney. It's interesting as a mother. Um, I've heard, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Laura Richardson. She's talked a lot about um, how this whole thing might have been able to be prevented. I think that's too much and too much to put on the cops and it's kind of a stretch, but I don't know. It's very interesting that nobody went to, to jail that night. Yeah, it is. I mean, that, that again is a, it's, it is interesting. I mean, we have the same law in Arizona. Um, it, it is a judgment call. I mean, I think there is, you know, I mean, it's hard to say in, in 2020 hindsight, you know, whether the cops made the right decision, but, um, you know, I think that the big issue here is you've got, you know, Gabby, who is saying it's all my fault. Well, you know, in domestic violence situations, that's a that's a very common response for a person who's being abused to take that blame on because their situation, their immediate situation is going to be so much worse if they, you know, say, no, somebody else did it. You know, I've, I've been beaten or I've been, you know, abused or whatever. So so it's just an interesting from a psychological perspective, too. You've got Gabby trying to protect herself, perhaps, you know, I mean, I don't know the whole story either. I don't know. I mean. What's what I find really fascinating is that the police um, wrote it off as mental health issues. Yeah, he said Gabby was having mental health issues. Very interesting. Which is so infuriating too, from a you know perspective. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a very complicated psychological cocktail that's going on there in domestic violence situations. You know, whether whether she did get violent, whether she you know, levied the first punch, nobody's really going to know that story. But I think it's, it's a missed opportunity, I think, 
from law enforcement perspective. Because as you say, if the law says one of them goes to jail, then one of them needs to go to jail, <laughs> you know, and then they yeah. can sort protect out protect yourself that just to make it easier on yeah. yourself, you know, um, I don't know. I, 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 again, I don't want to judge and I'm not, I'm not in the case to judge because I would, I would probably bet that in those situations, they do their best all the time to kind of, you know, evaluate the situation, ask yourselves, do you feel like there's a pattern? I, I also think people should be rewarded for their, um, you know, their, their past. If they don't have a criminal history or if they don't never been in trouble, you know, they've shown that they are a good citizen. You know, I, a lot of the times, and maybe this is the first time this situation's ever taken place. I don't know. Usually in toxic relationships, that's not the case. But in this case, these two are not home, right? So I, I'm assuming that the communication from home to Utah doesn't make its way there. I don't know how it works with police officers, but yeah, it just, there's, there's so many different areas yeah, and we can no, judge that, that scene a lot. Let's fast forward to now and the circus that it has become i'm curious as to your thoughts so you you kind of already alluded to it a little bit you've used the term killer um it, you're no doubt in your mind that brian laundry is uh is the the obviously i mean i'm just asking because of your you know without a doubt i guess is what we're looking for but yeah. no no doubt in your mind that that laundry is the <laughs> uh, uh the killer and it was uh, there was motive behind it, or could it have been uh, uh, something that turned accidental that turned into something more serious? And now, what what are your thoughts on how you felt it played out based on what you've seen in your field? Uh, yeah, no. So, I mean, I think that's a fair question. So, I mean, I, I look at what the facts are. I mean, what what is the evidence showing? And so, it's showing um, consciousness of guilt on Laundry's part. So. You know, whether he premeditated this or not is is still up in the air. I mean, it's very possible they could have had a heated discussion. He could have gotten, you know, he could have pushed her. She could have hit her head on something and died. So it could have very possibly been, um, you know, an unintended homicide. But regardless, he drives back in her van and doesn't say anything for two yeah. weeks. So that right there is is pretty damning evidence. And then disappears, you know, with the help of his family who are still hiding him and still not coming forward and, and giving information. I think if somebody, even if it was accidental, I mean, I, I get it. Everybody points their fingers to the, you know, significant other. That's, that's a fact, but it was right. only two of them out there. So, and then there's a suspicion of who gave him rides at various times and the lies he told the two people that picked him up and, and brought him to this location where they later found Gabby's body. So I think if you look at just the timeline and the facts of that, I think it's pretty damning evidence. But whether or not it's premeditated, that is definitely up in the air. It could definitely have been a heat of passion. You know, who knows who provoked what and, and how it happened. But, you know, it's the constellation of events that happened afterwards that I think really would be difficult to, to overcome when they find him. When they find him. Is that what you said? When they find him. <laughs> So I have theories. <laughs> Let's hear yes. them. I would love when, to dive when, into this. I have a few I of my own. You go him. ahead. <laughs> we're, we're getting Carrie so Drobin's on the theories line. on uh, where Brian Laundrie is, um, where he could be hiding, um, who's hiding him, or if he's even alive. We're going to get that live right now on Bobby Talks. Carrie, go ahead. Floor is yours. Oh, my God. And I will get the mail. Um, so, no, I have some theories about this because I think there's some precedent 
for, for people that do this. So he's gone into the woods. He's not taken a cell phone with him. He doesn't want to be tracked, right? So I right. think, honestly, I think he could stay in the woods for quite a, quite a while. And when I say quite a while, maybe like through the winter, okay? So enough time to where the case dies down, people have stopped looking for him, at least not in the, the way that they are now. So he can kind of go incognito. So when he finally does emerge, maybe after the thaw, maybe a few months down the line, he will emerge with a new identity. He will find his way into some small podunk town, maybe 300 plus population, and he will bury himself. He'll reinvent himself. That's what I believe could happen because it has happened with people. And I, and I lose, I mean, this is a crazy example, but look at, you know, Nazi war criminals, right? They, they disappear, they blend into the scenery, they, they form new identities and pretty soon everybody forgets about them. But years later, something will tip them off and something will resurface. And so I, I think that's a possibility for him if he doesn't die of natural causes before that. You know, if he tries to stay out there in the wilderness, you know, maybe living off the, you know, the woods, the berries, whatever, you know, I don't, I don't know what his history is. I don't know if he's like a survivor guy or, or anything, but there's a lot of possibility for him in the woods short of a bear finding him. So, yeah. Well, that's, so that could, I, I think that's, that would be a good plan if I was. That, 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 no, I was just going to say that that could of, very well happen too. I did read that he, uh, he was, uh, once prior or has survived out like in a survivor mentality for two months, just eating crackers. He's mentioned this before, um, according to something that I did read. Um, so yeah, very interesting. I was, I was thought, um, or I was under the impression that when they were looking in like the, uh, the area where he was living down there in Florida, that I thought maybe he would have already been swallowed up by one of the gators that might've got him because he just was kind of on a panic, not knowing where he should be going. Um, but when you talk yeah. about somebody that's drove back from, you know, from Wyoming to Florida and has had this amount of time to kind of come up with something, he, he's got an idea of where he wants to go. I'm assuming that when he got back home to Florida, it was he, he couldn't have thought that he could just, you know, stay in the public eye. So to me, he definitely has a mission of where he's trying to go. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I, I don't think he's over the border, though. I think he's here, um, you know, in the U.S. But, but I mean, just in looking at, at how the media just you know, will die down after a while. I think if, if you know, if, if he has thought this through, he's going to get some kind of communication through his family. That's what I believe. I mean, those are the only people that know exactly what's going on. And so they must have a plan. So, so that's where some of the cracks in this plan are going to come out, I believe. You know, the more people that know about it, the more pressure that's put on it, something, somebody's going to slip up somewhere and, and they'll find him. Let, let me tell you why I think it, <laughs> let me tell you why Carrie, why I think it's going to be sooner rather than later. <clears throat> Have you ever seen the documentary? Don't fuck with cats. Yes. <laughs> so yes. for those that haven't seen this documentary, yes. oh basically don't fuck with cats is a story about how the internet found this video of this person torturing cats and they took such offense to it, did not like that somebody could do something so appalling that they literally started looking in, created a, uh, a Facebook group of, 
all the things that they could put together about the room in the which the video was taking place, the wallpaper, the video, whatever was on the TV, the type of cigarettes that they could find. And law, maybe, maybe, maybe the media wasn't paying attention to this, but the internet always was. And in this case, Gabby Petito's body was found because the internet was paying attention. I just think the internet is literally everywhere now. And you're going to have a million more misleads than you ever did before. But with that being said, this dude, I don't know if there is a podunk town of 300 anymore that don't know that Brian Laundry exists. You know, maybe there is, maybe I'm ignorant to the fact, but I just think everybody has a cell phone now. Everybody in the middle of, you know, Kentucky is doing TikToks. You know, I, I just think that there's nowhere to hide anymore. Big Brother is watching literally everywhere you go. I think the internet will find this dude within next couple of weeks. I really, I really do believe it. I, there's rumors that he's in North Carolina now and people highly believe that. Who knows? You're going to hear he's all over the map. That I know, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Especially <laughs> because that, uh, that uh, the documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats, that end up, they end up finding this guy. Uh-oh, did we lose her? Oh, there she is. Yeah, no, you raise a really good point. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, she's got a fan base, right? I'm sure she's got a fan base and, and people are going to be hunting this down. I mean, you're you're right. I think I think that that is the wild card in this is is social media. And, you know, I I, I think he's in trouble. I think he's gonna, he's either going to have to stay in the woods for a very, very long time or like you said, which, you know, I actually happen to know a town like that, but <laughs> I'm not going to mention it. it. Might give him ideas, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think he better he better run, you know, he better stay hidden. But let me I think let me ask this then beforehand. And you know what else is interesting? The holiday. <laughs> go go ahead, Carrie. Sorry, I we're we're kind of losing uh, losing Carrie here a little oh, bit. Oh, I was going to say that, um, you know, with the holidays coming up and winter coming up, I think that makes it an even stronger case that he's going to have a hard time out there. So that's a good point. No, that's a really good point, especially if he's I, I can't imagine he's going north, but maybe that's the whole purpose, right, is nobody's going to think he's going north. He'll just stay south. Um, right. Let's let's kind of transition a little bit over to the. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit with with females and why they're so obsessed with uh true crimes um is it it because i do find that to be the case is that i i personally am not somebody who's obsessed with this i i or well i i get i have become obsessed with this case but i'm not somebody who's necessarily obsessed with true crime be, mainly because it's so happening so often i don't necessarily need to look for more reasons to upset my day um and I feel like a lot of times when I watch these stories, it just it sits on my skin. I get so uncomfortable with it. I, 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 I can't imagine that there's people um, out there that, that are capable of doing these things, which in his case is I really do believe that there was some type of crime of passion. Um, but who knows? Um, I, I don't know the story of who convinced who to go on a road trip. I don't know how long this was in, you know, you never know, right, is my, my point. But in your career field, yeah. how do you feel when it comes to um, these these people that create these 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 um, 
horrific crimes? Do they certain do they fit a certain mold? Do they have a certain character type? Is it uh, some type of things that we probably wouldn't even you know think of? Maybe they're OCD or they have some type of uh, weird characteristic or some sort. Why do you think people are capable of creating such violent, heinous crimes? And it doesn't even have to be in Gabby Petito's case anymore. We can transition off of that. Wow. Well, I mean, I think that um, there are all kinds of reasons is the short answer. Um, there are different kinds of criminals, too. So if we stick with the the ones that, um, you know, I mean, because we're, we're talking about crimes of passion versus the serial killers versus the stalkers versus, you know, so there's all different kinds. But I can speak to um, a certain um, psychological profile of uh, criminals that, that I've particularly dealt with and that I think are very, um, you know, you ask why women are compelled to, to watch a lot of true crime. And I think the sad thing is there are a lot of female victims, you know, with this particular psychological profile that I'm going to talk about, which is the, the you know, and I'm going to say typically it's the male killer. It does not always, sometimes it can be the other way around, but just for purposes of this conversation, I'll just say the male killer who is, you know, uh, a narcissist or has um, some kind of deviance in his past. And so I, I always look to see what is that watershed moment in a person's life that turns them. So either, you know, it's that whole thing, is somebody a natural born killer or do they become a killer? And so right. I think there are very, very few natural born killers but they do exist, and I think they are the psychopaths. They're the ones that are indiscriminate in terms of who they kill and why they kill. They're just like white sharks. They're the white shark of the criminal world. <laughs> they're out there and they're predators. And those are the serial killers. Those are the ones that have um, antisocial personality disorder, which is something that they, they, it's just their brains are different. They're, they're molded differently. So there's not necessarily a thing in their life that is going to, to turn them. But then there are what I call the regular ones that have a traumatic event in their life or they've had a horrific childhood, something that, that will turn them into the criminal that they become. So like, um, you know, uh, let's say somebody has been abused their entire life, you know, whether it's sexually, physically, whether they've been a witness to domestic violence, you know, these are generational things. That person then goes on to beat and abuse the person in his life because that's what he's learned. It's learned behavior. Right. And so that unfortunately we see a lot of, you know, they don't, you know, necessarily they're not groomed to be a killer, but they become that way because that's that's what they've learned. That's the anger. A lot of a lot of this starts with rage and it starts with like un um unchecked anger, I guess, if you will. So so that's one category. And then there's one that has you know, substance abuse issues. So you, you marry substance abuse with the deviant behavior and you've got a recipe for disaster. You've got somebody who is volatile, you know, one thing's going to trigger them. And, and unfortunately you have a lot of these, and I'll just talk about, you know, the, the domestic violence ones that I've seen that turn into homicide. You know, those are relationships where people get into and they don't, you know, lots of times the, the victim is blindsided by it. I mean, lots of times there'll be red flags, but sometimes they're blindsided. You know, they get into a relationship and now they've just suddenly married Jekyll and Hyde. You know, they have somebody who's, you know, the minute that you voice an opinion or, or want to do something that's different from, from the person that they're married to, you know, that creates 
uh, you know, um, basically a Molotov cocktail, you know, and so that is going to start the violence. So it's, it really depends on the crime and it depends on the, the profile and the background of the person who's committed the crime. And I kind of, in a way, separate those from crimes of passion because crimes of passion, a lot of different things can trigger them. It's not necessarily, you know, their, their dark deviant past, but people that premeditate murders or that are abusive in the, you know, the marriage or the relationship that they're in, those usually have some triggers. They have something in their past that is going to turn them into that. So it's a kind of a convoluted response to your question, but it, there's no black and white, you know, and that's the, the sad part. Well, that's the part that makes it difficult to, you know, to profile, to find. I mean, like, I, I'm going to be very, I'm going to walk tiptoe here just because I don't want anybody to think I'm making connections anywhere. But I teach in a school and I say this all the time that a, you know, the public education system at any given moment is this, the most fragile ecosystem that can exist because you never know what took place the night before at home with any particular person. Um, and then they bring that into a school. And a lot of times a school is their safe place, you know, whether there doesn't even matter if they're being bullied in that school, it might be way worse what's taking place at home. So trying to identify early mental health issues and really taking them serious in providing the amount of help that's needed, um, really is crucial because not that they're going to grow up and be these heinous, you know, criminals, but people, adults, they had to start somewhere and that trauma had to start somewhere. And more times than not, I would argue that it probably didn't start once they became adults. So there's this pattern of behavior. This is, you know, vicious cycle that kind of takes place. And I'm not really sure how we identify it because you don't want to make that connection to what it could be you're just kind of hoping that you can kind of cut it off at the you know at the knees and you know kind of put them back on the right track but we have such a huge um shortage i'm from michigan we have such a huge shortage of social workers of mental health experts um you know to get kids that seem to have a huge amount not just kids but people in general have a huge amount of mental health disorder. Um, the help that they need in order to get them on the right track, it, it's, it seems at times to be insurmountable and it seems at times to be, um, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, uh, a failure right from the get go, but you have to keep it up. It's noble in order to pursue it, but I don't know. I'm ranting now, but like, there's a lot there. I just, I'm not really sure what more we can do in the public education system. Maybe you have some uh, suggestions or advice of what we can do to better um, provide our students in our community with uh, the, the help that they might be, might be seeking. Well, it's interesting that you bring, bring that up. I mean, I, I literally just finished writing a book about um, the Colorado movie massacre. The James oh, really? Who was a mass shooter. And he was also a student. He was a doctorate student um, at the, and he, he didn't shoot up the students in the school, but he, he obviously had a lot of issues going into that and wound up shooting, you know, all of the, the tragedy that happened at the um, Colorado movie theater. But to your point, you know, the book, when I, when I was working on the book, I really 
kind of did a deep, deep dive into that issue. You know, how do we prevent this? How, what do we look for? And, you know, and so I, I was analyzing a lot of school shootings and a lot of students that, you know, the backgrounds of a lot of these students, is it mental health? Is it something else that we could do? And, you know, honestly, the thing that, that keeps popping up is communication. You know, if you see something, say something. There has to be, you know, nothing is too um, obtuse or small to say anything, especially in this culture of social media where people are, are you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, cyberbullying. You know, there's there people are talking. They're revealing stuff. They're usually, I mean, uh, the, the commonality between all of these killers that I profiled in this book, they all wrote. They all kept journals. They, they turned in assignments to their English teachers, their, you know, whatever. All of that is relevant and important and must be shared, even if you think it's not. I mean, because it it's a clue. It's a it's a window into what is going on in their psyche, in their home life. And, you know, and the, the really tragic reality of this is it's very, very difficult to yeah. to prevent, to detect, to stop. But we have to keep trying. You know, because they're, those are the markers. Those are the, are the flags. And, and you're right. People on the front lines are the educators. They're the ones that are there. They're seeing it firsthand. And they're the ones that are able to speak up and say something and identify it and say, this something's not right. We need to look farther into this. And, um, and I think that's, that's an incredibly um, challenging and also frustrating road because there is so much that's protected by privacy. There's so much that you can't delve into. But... I think that, you know, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, you know, because it, it just is. I mean, these cases are really that challenging and that difficult, but there are clues. And that's kind of goes back to my point with that, that watershed moment. You know, what is going on in the person's life that or in their childhood? What's that one thing that's turning them that they can't get over that maybe they need help with? You know, the, the kid who's a, a drug addict or selling drugs usually has some trauma or something in their history that's causing them to try to escape through substance abuse or through, you know, so these things are all, they're all flag, they're all red flags for something else. So I, I think that, you know, you're in a prime position and a lot of our educators are in a prime position, but it's also not all on your shoulders. It's just that you happen to be at the front lines and be able to see things that maybe parents aren't seeing because they're working so hard or healthcare providers aren't sharing because of HIPAA laws. I mean, there's so many, there's so many variables, but I wish that different organizations would work together to, to try to, you know, feed information, but they just don't, they don't on this level. And so that's, you know, that needs to change. Well, why do you think that is, Carrie? Why, why, why don't they want to communicate with each other? I think there's fear. I think people are afraid of labels. They're afraid of um, being wrong, you know. Um, and they also don't trust their own their own instinct. I mean, if you if and I'll give you a classic example. I mean, the um, the mass shooting at Virginia Tech, for example. I mean, uh, Sangui Cho was writing very. Um, graphically violent plays and poems and his teachers saw this they knew this was going on you know but instead of you know alerting other departments and saying hey this there's something wrong with this guy they they simply removed him and and had him tutored privately you know so i mean and not to say that 
you know, that they should have done, you know, should have known because I mean, it's, it's really hard to, to look at that stuff in hindsight and say, you know, this is what you should have observed. This is what you should have shared. But I think in that case, that case was really like the, the one that drove home a lot of the changes, which is, you know, communicate. The other thing that was interesting about that was Virginia Tech at that time wasn't asking for personal essays for admissions, you know, and you can get so much information in personal essays and personal writings, and they would have learned a lot from this person had they required that. So I, I think, you know, things are becoming too computerized, too standardized. They're missing that, that human connection that I think if kids were really compelled to share their feelings and talk about what's going on, I think there might be more awareness, honestly. Yeah, because what I find, and to kind of echo what you just said, is that it doesn't matter if, even if we were to bring to the attention of Virginia Tech, this particular, uh, I, I remember the story, I forget the person's name, you, you mentioned it. Um, but it, it, even if we were to bring to their awareness that you writing this, you sharing this, means that I have to then share this with A, B, and C. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I tell that to my students now. I always say to them, like, look, th th those that feel comfortable sharing with me, they'll, they'll want to, you know, Mr. Gifford, can I talk to you? And I'll always say, just so we're clear, you know, don't incriminate yourself because if you do, I have to, I have a responsibility. Um, with that being said, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And nine times out of 10, they tell it anyways. And the reason they tell it is because they want to be heard. Um, and, and it almost sounds like what you're saying in these cases and not all of them, I'm sure. But if these students feel like they've been going through their life, not students, but people feel like they've been going through their life and nobody's really either acknowledging their existence or acknowledging their voice or validating any of their thoughts inside of their head. Do they matter? Do they exist? All of these things. And if nobody, if we keep being afraid to even share these with one another, I would rather overshare, right? Than not overshare because at least in that situation, you can put your head down at night saying, you know, we, we did what we thought we could do. We thought that was the best. By turning ahead to it now, you kind of, you're kind of just, you're playing ignorant to a situation that might develop into something else. You know, I, I think about like those situations where like Quentin Tarantino, okay? One of the great writers, directors of our time, uh, of all time. And he has written some very brutal scenes and some very dark things that can come from only dark places. David Fincher, same way. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they attach themselves to those characters that they create. And early on in their life, when they were to write things of that nature, and they were then told that it was going to be shared with someone else and somebody was to sit them in a room and talk with them, you would get a real sense real quick of who is suffering and who's not. Because at least from my firsthand experience, I can always, not all the time, but most of the time you can tell which students want to talk versus which students were just playing around. And in the case of Quentin Tarantino, he was more than likely the kid that just was playing around, just wanted to see if he could set something on fire where there's other kids that don't necessarily want to set things on fire. They want to be heard, but then they get to a point where it's like, Oh my goodness, nobody even knows I exist. What can I do? So I don't know. Maybe you think I'm off. That's kind of my thoughts on the whole mental health issue is that I just feel like it is noble. It is worth doing. The good news is in today's society, it does feel like it's, you know, mental health is something that's talked about quite a bit. We might not know how to handle it yet, but 
we do acknowledge that it exists now and that's a victory. Yes, I agree. I couldn't agree more. So Carrie, you are somebody that I talked about earlier being a badass human being. You've written six novels now. Your sixth one will be coming out next year. Is that correct? 2022? Correct. 2022 on the Aurora Massacre. The James um, yes. Massacre. <laughs> uh, Aurora. And that was in Colorado, correct? Correct. It's on the anniversary. It's scheduled to be released on the anniversary. So... And you know, for our <laughs> listeners, uh, she's talking about the, uh, that was that, now that was the dark night. Um, yeah. yes, that was, so that was the second movie or the first movie, second movie, correct? It was the second, yes. The second one where the Joker was still. Yes. Alive. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I, I know that a lot of the times that brings it back to the old conversation of does art imitate life? Does light imitate art? A little bit of both probably. Um, yeah. but yeah, so that's, uh, coming out next year, um, I kind of wanted to dive into some of your previous work, um, some of the uh, the biker infiltration stories that you have uh, kind of taken out. How many books of those have you written? Um, hmm. Well, I've written about the big five uh, biker gangs in yeah. the United States. And so um, started out writing about the Hells Angels in Running with the Devil. That was, uh, they're all slightly different, but they all deal with gangs as the centerpiece of the book. So, you know, the first one was a, a, the first ever infiltration of the Hells Angels by law enforcement. Yeah. And then um, the second book I wrote was a rival gang, about a rival gang of the Hells Angels. It was the Pagans who are on the East Coast. They're out of Philadelphia. And that was taken from the perspective of somebody who was raised in an organized crime family. In fact, his father was the founder of the pagans so that was fascinating to take it from that perspective and then i wrote about um the vagos mongols and outlaws in a book that was later made into a television series called gangland undercover so if you don't want to read the book you can watch the series <laughs> so and then i uh, finished it off with uh the last chicago boss which is the a book about the godfather of the chicago outlaws and so, and that is also being made into a documentary. So it's a, uh, yeah. So I think I've covered the gamut of biker gangs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was just curious the nature of your interest in these things, because, you know, you're, I'm just looking at Carrie Jobin from afar. I don't know you. I've just met you today at 6:50. We sat down Eastern standard time. I'm sure it's five o'clock there. Um, I just know that, um, just through talking to you that there's something about you that takes an interest in that. Where does that originate from? Um, you know, you're, you're, you're diving in the things you talked uh, earlier about when the gate closed behind you during that setting there, you I mean, it was very vulnerable. A lot of these stories that you're being shared with that you're writing, you know, or maybe some situations you've been in, these are some on the edge type things. Uh, what, what, what brings you to, or what motivates you to want to be a part and tell those stories? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it kind of happened by accident, um, or I should say serendipity maybe, but I, um, you know, I, I started out writing fiction and um, had written a couple of novels before I was approached. Every, every one of the books that I've written, I've been asked to write. So they're kind of a hybrid of true crime and memoir. Okay. Um, with the exception of the first one, uh, with the devil, which is uh, it was written in third person as sort of an ensemble cast, but I was still asked to write that that story, and I think there is you know so I didn't know anything at all 
about the Hell's Angels when I write it. I um, it wasn't in my wheelhouse at all. I didn't think, but um, but anyway, I I was asked to write it because the operatives who were working that case were still undercover, and they couldn't sell their story while they were undercover. And at the time, I was a lawyer and was still am a lawyer, but they thought, you know, we're going to come to you with this story. We know that you'll hold it in confidence. So I actually wrote that story kind of quasi undercover. I mean, I, I was thrown into the world of almost being a journalist, kind of a deep throat journalist, um, <laughs> you know, meeting the operatives sort of, you know, dark areas and in places that I couldn't record anything. I couldn't, you know, it was a really, it was a crazy experience, really crazy experience. But the really crazy part of it is that I was married to, um, a homicide detective at the time. And he was also involved, unbeknownst to me, in a, an undercover part of that case. So oh, wow. we were both working undercover in our various roles, you know. Um, and so when the book finally came out, you know, that's when it was the big reveal happened. So we were having the big, re it was like a, the book itself is a story within a story. And my life was a story within a story. So it was a really odd, odd experience, but it kind of launched my career. It was not very good for my marriage. <laughs> so <laughs> it launched my career. Um, and so the, the second, you know, so one book, one, um, the pagan book came out of running with the devil because that person had read running with the devil and then wanted his story told, but from the perspective of a rival gang, and that was fascinating too, because that was, you know, Philadelphia. I'd never been to Philadelphia. We had the time difference, you know, and I, there was no way. I, so this was all improvisation for me. I didn't know how I was going to do this really. I mean, it's not like you can go to the library and, and read books on biker gangs, you know, I mean, this was like complete, you know, first impression novice. And so I delved into this very crazy world and, um, you know, I, I mean, I, at one point I had a, <laughs> I have a really good friend of mine who writes romances and she and I used to be in a critique group together and we would get there and, and we would say to each other, okay, I don't know how to write another fight scene and make it original. Like I'm writing so many fight scenes. Like, how do you do that and keep it fresh? And she would be writing so many sex scenes and she would say, how many, how do you do that and keep it fresh? <laughs> so we would be <laughs> exchanging our manuscripts, you know, it was, it was crazy. So, you know, there's, there's so many stories that came out of writing all of those books and they're all crazy. I, I mean, the, the Pagan book was probably the, you know, maybe the, the most sort of edgy because I had to write that one, you know, the time difference made it difficult. So I had to write that one in my closet on little sticky note pads because my husband at the time did not know I was writing the second book. So, you know, again, there's another like secret world. <laughs> I had to fly these, you know, fly that person out to Phoenix, interview him in a hotel rooms. I mean, it was just really, there's a lot involved in what, um, behind the scenes. In fact, I, um, I do a talk called doing time for the crime. And, um, I, I go into detail about all of the behind the scenes stuff. I even developed a workshop. It's on my website. You go to carriedroven.com, there's a, a true crime writing workshop where I give away a lot of my secrets and tips of how I was able to write these these stories about these, you know, 
people that, I mean, you've got to figure there's not that many women involved. And the women that are, you know, associated with these biker gangs, their property of, you know, so, I mean, right. the fact that, that they would tell me their stories is pretty extraordinary. So, and I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day, which is even crazier. <laughs> that is, that is kind of crazy though, because I can only imagine you who would never be property of anybody having conversations with these right. females privately or separately, and that might get them in trouble. I don't know. I just know that you are definitely cut from a different cloth. Um, who and what do you do? And we'll kind of wrap this up here in the next five, five, 10 minutes. Um, Carrie, this has been a great conversation. I just wanted to say, I completely appreciate you being on the show if I haven't said that already, but, um, thank you for having what do you, what does Carrie do? What do you do to make sure that you keep your mental health in check? Cause you know, writing these, writing, you know, these books on such dark, you know, dark places and then doing what you do for a living. How do you escape it? I know you said you, you alluded to that you have children. I don't know the ages, um, but like, what, what do you do to make sure that you relax, that you're checking your mental health in? Because that's, that's who, I mean, that is super important as well. Not just the people that you're servicing, but you know, yourself so that you can continue to do it and do it at a happy, healthy um, pace. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. I actually get asked that a lot because there has to be a place for a lot of that stuff to go. Um, so one of the things that I, I love to do is I hike a lot. I like to okay. get out in nature. I, I find it very peaceful. And um, a lot of times I will hike, you know, um, different. I, I mean, during COVID, I hiked all the time, but it's just sort of an escape for me. And I'm also, I, I would say I'm a very spiritual person. And so I think I'm very grounded spiritually that way. And I think that helps me to keep a lot of things in perspective and in check. Um, so I think those two things really help a lot. Um, but, but mostly just a lot of, you know, exercise, getting outside, um, not being cooped up as I spend a lot of time writing and, you know, being behind a computer. So it's really important for me to, to get outdoors you know, some fresh air. <laughs> so, yeah. Fresh air is huge. Yeah. I, I, nothing uh, too crazy. I don't skydive or do anything like <laughs> Really? I would assume that you're an adrenaline junkie based on the things that you, uh, you seek in your information for your content. Um, I, uh, I, I, I'm a huge person that likes yeah. to travel. I, um, you know, talking about the obsession of this particular case, I think what gravitates me to the Gabby Petito case was just the fact that, you know, I'm a dreamer at heart. I'm a traveler at heart. I, um, I like to see and just feel like, uh, you know, nature and things that are greater than me and observe and, you know, kind of take them in if I can, so to speak. So, you know, you have this girl who's speaks to my very soul as far as adventure goes, um, you know, and, and out in those particular parts of the world, it could really be anybody um, could be found in those situations. But mm -hmm. I, um, that's, we've been there and talked about that and covered that. I just know that, uh, Make sure that, Carrie, you keep on your mental health. I'll keep doing the same thing. Um, just again, thanks for being on the show. Do you have any final say? Do you want to promote where we can see you? Where can people follow you? Um, how can, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't tell you this, but I've we've had 100 comments popping up on my right-hand side here. And one of the comments said uh, you're now their favorite author and they don't even know it yet. So they're going to go check out some of your stuff. Um, where can people find your, your work? Where can people find uh, Carrie Drobin? 
Well, uh, the easiest place probably where everything is compiled is on my website, carriedrobin.com. If you uh, click on the news um, or the media kit, you'll see a whole list of all of the television appearances and uh, book reviews. I mean, there's just been a ton. And I should say, I'm going to be appearing in a show um, on October 14th called Indefensible. And it's going to be airing on Sundance TV and AMC+. Plus. So it's it should be an interesting take on a true case that happened in Scottsdale. So I'll be uh, narrating that and, and giving some comments on that. So that's it. That is awesome. Congrats on that, by the way. Congrats on the documentary that's going to be coming out, too. Um, I, uh, I, I, I went to school for TV, film, and radio from Bowling Green before I went to become a teacher. And uh, this is just kind of part one of many things that I'd like to do down the road, documentaries, things of that nature. So I, uh, I'm very excited that your, your work is getting created into different platforms and very, you know, happy for you there, Carrie. So Thank you. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's been a blast. Um, she's going to stay on. We're going to get off the air here. We're going to, her and I will talk off camera here, but just as always, for those of you that have been on with us live, I think this was the most successful live show that we've had. Uh, a lot of that is attributed to Carrie and the content that we covered. Uh, Bobby talks dot, dot, dot. You know the story. There's always more to the story. You guys can catch me. Subscribe. Go to Spotify, Google Play, uh, Apple Playlist, Google Podcasts, all those things. Go there. And make sure you leave a review if you can. Take five seconds, leave a review, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. That way we can kind of get this show growing on the audio platform as much as the YouTube. And if you're new to the YouTube world and Twitch and Facebook, follow, like, subscribe, do the whole thing. So Bobby Talks, dot, 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 always more of the story. We'll see you on down the road. Thanks.